Welcome to our podcast, Designer Jeans. We're your hosts, Sanjay. I'm Hope. I'm Maria. And I'm Ephraim. In this podcast, we discuss the history, workings, and significance of the CRISPR-Cas9 system. In this episode of Designer Genes, we're going to discuss the history and current state of CRISPR technology. We hope you enjoy the episode. So we last last left off on talking about what the future might hold for genetic modification and genetic engineering. And, you know, we were talking about this holy grail of gene therapy that would contain a, a method or a system to target very specific faulty DNA segments that would be able to work in real time and then would also be able to affect an entire organism and not just act on one cell or one tissue culture. And recent developments in science and across many decades of time have developed a system known as CRISPR. And some of our listeners may have heard of this before, some of you may not have heard of it, but CRISPR is a little bit shortened version of the full name is a CRISPR-Cas9 system. It's a, a gene editing tool and it was essentially discovered by a group of scientists the, the last piece was discovered by the Nobel Prize winners for 2020, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry specifically, um, and their names are Dr. Emmanuel Charpentier and Dr. Jennifer Dudna. And so the system, it's like I said, a gene editing tool. It was first identified in E. coli of all things. And so E. coli are a common bacteria that are used oftentimes in molecular biology. And it's interesting that we were able to get from this, this identification of this tool in a tiny little bacterial sample. And in today's research, it's being implemented in human trials and to treat all sorts of different diseases and disorders. And so if we go back to the very beginning, CRISPR-Cas9, it acts like genetic scissors. And so researchers can use this tool to alter very, very specific sequences of DNA. And so this is completely revolutionary in the terms of genetic engineering and genetic modification. And by editing the sequences of DNA, you can ultimately modify gene function. And then in the long term, maybe modify the phenotype, which is how genes in your body present themselves. So down the road, there may be potential for modifying superficial qualities like hair color or eye color or things of that nature. And so this system, it works by primarily disrupting, deleting, or correcting and inserting genetic sequences into your DNA. So where do they get those genetic sequences from if they're going to replace them? So it's a very long history of research of how to get there. And in our last episode, we talked briefly about um, genetic sequencing. And so just to recap, within all of our cells as humans, we're composed of, you know, all these different tissues that have all these different cells and within them we have genetic information and that's what encodes for essentially everything that we are. And the base of it is DNA and DNA is composed of 
nucleic acids, which are, you know, composed of a variety of different components. And these sequences are specific in that they follow along to code for different genes and different functions. And so knowing which sequences of DNA to alter or what those specific sequences are, what they read, what they code for is just a long step in the process of sequencing DNA and understanding typically within each field if, if you know you're a researcher studying something like pancreatic cancer there's oftentimes research ongoing to see what genes affect that kind of cancer and then eventually down the road researchers will be able to sort of find out and target which gene it is and then know which sequence it is so it's it's not an easy process this CRISPR method is easier than previous methods of altering your DNA but it does require years and years of, of work and targeted thinking to looking at specific genes within the human genome and other types of genomes as well. You said that CRISPR came from like bacteria. Were we looking for it in bacteria? Because the human genome is completely different from like a bacterial genome. So like, how do we know that this is 100% gonna work on humans and stuff like that? Well, that's really interesting. It actually happened that in the 1980s, in 1987 in particular, this CRISPR series, and so CRISPR stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. This sequence was found in E. coli and it wasn't found on purpose. <laughs> it was found on accident by a team of Japanese scientists at Osaka University. And what they found were that they kept seeing in, in the genetic information of E. coli, which E. coli are a type of bacteria, that there were these short repeats that were 30 base pairs long and they were palindromic. And so palindromic is means it reads the same forward as it reads backwards, you know, like the word race car. If you put all the letters down and you spelled it out, going forwards it would read race car and going backwards it would read race car. Um, and so essentially they kept finding these short repeats that were palindromic that were separated by non-palindromic repeats in the DNA of th this bacteria. And so they, they didn't know what it was, but they knew it was weird and it didn't look right and something was different about it. And so they cited it in their research paper and they didn't know what the purpose was, but they were able to identify it and obviously able to identify that the palindromic sequences were 30 base pairs long and the non-palindromic were on average around 36 base pairs. And so that, that kind of idea existed, it circulated. And in the 1990s, a Spanish molecular biologist at the University of Alicante in Spain by the name of Francisco Mojica discovered this same exact set of palindromic sequences in Archaea. And so, like you said, it doesn't, how, how were scientists able to translate something from bacteria into humans. That's the, you know, long-term thinking. We started at the very beginning with bacteria and in the very end today, we're seeing this, this technology being implemented in humans. But the scientists found it in archaea. And so archaea and bacteria, they're not the same. They're both single cellular organisms. They're very, very small, but they are distantly related and their components and what makes them them, they're different. And so it was really weird that this scientist, Francisco Mojica, saw this, these same sets of palindromic sequences appearing in Archaea. And so he was actually the first one to name it CRISPR, to give it that acronym. And so what he did, since he thought, again, this is kind of weird, he, he was able to survey scientific literature and he found the work of the Japanese team that was led by Dr. Ishino. 
And so since he saw that it reached across different types of organisms, he concluded that it must have been important, right? Like you're seeing this in archaea and bacteria and they're very, very different. These sequences have to mean something. They're not just weird looking like they have to be responsible for something. Definitely not a mistake then. Yeah, definitely not a mistake. And I mean, you can imagine being a scientist at this time and seeing something like that and just the kind of like curiosity that might spark in you to continue doing research in this field. So naturally, as the years went on, more research was done by all sorts of different researchers all over the world. And it eventually became a sort of collaborative type of viewing and investigation into what these repeats were. So Dr. Mojica, we're still talking about this Spanish researcher, he then took the spacer regions, the regions that were not palindromic, but separated the palindromic ones. And he inserted it into this program. The program is called BLAST, and BLAST stands for Basic Local Alignment Search Tool. And basically what it is, is it just runs that sequence that you've identified against all other known DNA sequences. And though at first there was some trouble with it because DNA sequences at the time, this is the 1990s, they were still being sequenced and research is being done, and so new sequences are being found. But eventually, he was able to find that in the sample he used, he took a sample from E. coli, now we're back at looking back at bacteria, and he ran it through this BLAST tool. And he was able to find that the palindromic, the CRISPR regions, matched exactly to CRISPR regions found in the DNA of viruses. That's pretty cool. It is, right? I mean, first we saw that they found it in bacteria, and then they found it in archaea, and then using this BLAST tool, Dr. Mojica was able to find it in viruses as well. And the, the interesting thing was that it was exactly matched to the one in viruses. And so... Aren't viruses like the mortal enemies of bacteria though? I wonder why they had such similar DNA across those two domains. Yeah, right, like that wouldn't make sense that you would be seeing something in a virus that's meant to kill bacteria. And so what was even more interesting was that, like you said, these viruses that they found them in were specific to that bacterial strain. They were phages that targeted that bacteria. And so Dr. Mojica started to hypothesize that, you know, after looking at the bacteria that he had taken the sample from, he noticed that those bacteria were immune to that specific kind of virus. So he thought if this CRISPR sequence is translating across bacteria and virus, but this bacteria is actually immune to that virus, then maybe CRISPR encodes for instructions for adaptive immunity. And in other words, the bacteria that has that genetic sequence that's found in the virus is there because it contains instructions for protecting that bacteria against that virus. And that that's just a crazy, a crazy type of like thinking that would go into looking at how these different entities interact with each other. You know, it's crossing different bacteria and viruses and archaea, like I've said before, and it's just incredible incredible that these scientists were able to come up with these theories, you know. It might seem far-fetched that that's what it is, but in 2006, uh, another scientist sort of created research that supported this theory of adaptive immunity. And so this occurred actually in a, a yogurt production factory of all things. And so the yogurt production factory had hired this researcher. Philip Horvath to do some research because they kept noticing that certain cultures of their yogurt were going sour, you know, bad, but some of them weren't. And so he started to do 
investigations on the yogurt and he found that some strains of the bacteria that made up the yogurt were susceptible to virus infections, but others weren't. And so he thought, okay, let me investigate this a little bit further. And what he found was that the bacteria that were resistant contained the CRISPR sequence. And so we see this paralleling the previous researcher, the Spanish one, Dr. Mojica. And eventually this came to help prove that CRISPR might act in an adaptive immune response in DNA and that it's sequence specific. That is so fascinating. Yeah, isn't it? It it's really is. And this was going on in different parts of the world as well. That different researchers were finding these same findings. So these are basically like immune systems, but for bacteria. That's crazy that they're that sophisticated with just one cell. Right, right. With a like unicellular type of organism to be able to contain this response that's very specific to the pathogen that's attacking it. It is. It's it's truly incredible. You know, like, why don't humans have it if that's the case? Like, well, if it's so powerful, it's such a powerful tool against like infections and stuff. How did bacteria evolve it and then humans didn't or eukaryota? Yeah. So eventually what ended up happening is scientists had that same idea. Can we take this the sequence specific targeted immune response and implement it into humans. And so as research continued, they started to try to do that. You know, like we had said in the last one, we're very opportunistic. If we see the opportunity to, to attack something, a new problem, we're going to. And so already on the minds of these researchers were ways, were long-term solutions to, you know, solving genetic problems by targeting DNA specifically, but they didn't have all the components to do it yet. And so this researcher, the one working in the yogurt factory, Dr. Horvath, he actually found the next piece to that CRISPR-Cas9 system. He found the Cas9 gene, and that Cas9 gene is important for, it codes for a protein, and that protein makes cuts in viruses' DNA. So it goes in, it cuts the viral DNA, and then eventually that DNA is inserted into the DNA of the um, the bacteria that they saw. So this was really important. They were finding out all the different components to it. And eventually, as the years went on, different researchers took on different opportunities to, to work with CRISPR and it sort of blew up. And so in 2006, this researcher by the name of John Vanderoost, he created artificial CRISPR arrays, which was revolutionary in advancing CRISPR system into potentially working in other models. And so he was able to take CRISPR from bacteria that lacked this system, um, or he was able to take CRISPR from, <laughs> from the bacteria, my bad, that had the system in place, had the CRISPR system, and insert it into bacteria that didn't, and then run these tests against viruses and essentially was able to take bacteria that were not resistant to viruses and help them become resistant. And so this was called directly programmable CRISPR-based immunity, which is another revolutionary thing. You're able to transfer immunity from one type of organism to another organism that doesn't have that immunity. All within a cup of yogurt. Yeah, all, all because of a cup of yogurt, you know? <laughs> it's really interesting. It's interesting too, how all of this is related. You know, oftentimes we think like scientific findings on such the molecular level might not be related to these big picture things that we're trying to solve. But hey, yogurt is something very relatable that many people can see and they could see the resistance and the lack of resistance to viruses 
in the production of yogurt. So that's really cool too. It makes me realize how useful it is and how it all happened so quickly. Like sometimes you discover something and you don't know why it's useful until years later. But with this, I mean, we already found one purpose with it, right? Hey, have a yummy cup of yogurt. I'm not going to look at my next cup of Chobani the same way. Chobani, all good, no bad. <laughs> yeah, definitely. It's, it's really the results paid off instantly. And then they continued to contribute to solving these bigger problems. So eventually, um, this French researcher by the name of Emmanuel Charpentier mentioned that researcher at the beginning because they won in addition with an American researcher, the 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry, she accidentally discovered the last working component for the CRISPR-Cas9 system. And once she found this component, you know that that completely changed the game for how CRISPR was used in research because now researchers around the world be able to use the system now knowing all the necessary components. And so this piece is a piece of genetic information known as transactivating CRISPR RNA or tracer RNA. And it was found in another type of bacteria. So we're still not yet working in humans. We're still working in these small unicellular types of organisms. And so this piece of genetic information, this tracer RNA, it's necessary for the maturation and activation of another piece of genetic information um, that's copied from the CRISPR sequence. And so this was, like I said, completely pivotal in the research of what the CRISPR-Cas9 system is. And in 2013, this uh, other researcher by the name of Virgin Legis Schicksnes was able to move the CRISPR system from inside a bacteria into a test tube. The step of going from in vivo inside a living cellular culture to moving into a test tube helps us move from working with just bacteria to potentially implementing it in other animal models like mice or humans or other types of working cells. It sounds like a small thing, but really it seems like this would have huge, huge implications and consequences. Like, like you said, like now it's no longer isolated within one thing, but it almost seems like we've almost unleashed the beast in a way. <laughs> Yeah, it really sets up the groundwork for investigating how this can be used in different tissue cultures of different kinds of animals. And yeah, it's, it seems like a small step, but all the research gone into that. I mean, I don't doubt that that took a lot of time and a lot of work. And as we've seen, it's the work of a lot of different researchers over many years and decades before they even got to that point. And so eventually, Emmanuel Charpentier, the French researcher, started to work with an American researcher by the name of Jennifer Dudna. And these two are the two that won the uh, 2020 Nobel Prize in Chemistry. And they found a way, starting in 2012, to optimize and simplify the pathway for CRISPR. And so what they did is they artificially fused that tracer RNA that Dr. Charpentier found with CRISPR RNA into one single molecule. And so this completely simplified the steps. It made it a lot quicker to do the whole process. <laughs> and they called this guide RNA. And so what this allowed for was the researchers were able to cut and edit DNA at a very specific location. If they knew the sequence of whatever gene they wanted to change, 
they could do that now with this guide RNA that they helped create. So and just so to get this right, the just to get this right, the guide RNA would be a combination of the tracer RNA and the CRISPR RNA, and it would show the genes to be cut and edited, or just any gene. No, so it's it's sequence specific, meaning okay. that yeah, if they they could then take that guide RNA and they could change the code on it. They, in general terms, this these kinds of genetic scissors, they could change the code on it to match the DNA to whatever they wanted to cut. So if they knew the sequence of the gene they wanted to cut, they could change it on their guide RNA, edit it, and then insert it into whatever type of experiment they were doing. And it worked and it would go and it would cut at this specific precise location, which is incredible because we saw just not too many years ago, people trying to modify genes by using something as widespread as radiation and that wasn't working. They wanted something specific. And now you've got perhaps the most specific you can get. You're going down to the sequences of the genes that control for whatever disease or proteins or malfunctioning types of components you're trying to target. That's nice because you don't have to ruin other genes in the process. You can just do the exact gene you want and nothing more. Yeah, it, it is. It's obviously... Um, much more effective, much more like shorter on time and overall a better system for targeting genes. Again, going back to radiation, I think it's really cool that now we are able to target just the cancer cells specifically with this new method that has existed within bacteria and single-celled organisms. Um, now we don't have to just rely on hoping it hits it and hit, hits it alone, but then now we can like go in with precision, get exactly what we want and have it be effective. And this is already starting now. That's fascinating. It is. It's incredibly fascinating how far we've come along with the advancements that CRISPR has been able to make in, in potentially curing diseases and eliminating types of cancers that exist. So we've now found what the CRISPR-Cas9 system is, and we know it's effective at targeting specific genetic sequences and changing them out and modifying them and doing what you want to do with it. So where are we at today? What can CRISPR do today? Because, you know, the last time we took a look at this research, we were in 2012-2013, and it's been several years since then. So today, CRISPR is used widely in all forms of research to modify the genomes of plants, animals, now to include humans in these sort of clinical trials, and even, as you probably would have guessed, bacteria. And so, specific to plants, we see CRISPR being used to confer uh, like resistance to different types of pests and stuff in different plants which is extremely beneficial in the long run for food supply and agriculture and that sort of thing. So we see this gene editing tool having effects on something that affects each of us every single day, if, even if we don't suffer from, you know, a sort of genetic disease or some type of ailment. Food and the altering of crops affects everybody every single day in their life. So it's incredible how widespread CRISPR has become. 
It's also now used in plant breeding and researchers have found a way to get these optimal rice varieties by editing the genes in the crops that were responsible for absorbing heavy metals from the soil. And so now they don't have that. And now there are these optimal strains of rice. <laughs> and if we look more at- Just imagine what Gregor Mendel would do if he knew about this technology. Like, I feel like if we're editing plants, all that much and he's spending all this time just trying to alter the way peas look how he would react to us being able to go in and pick the specific genes we want and boom there's your peas i know don't you think gregor mendel would love would have loved this this would have been so cool for him yeah it definitely it definitely would have been cool to see what gregor mendel could have done in his pea experiments having the technology of CRISPR at his hands. But also, if being a man who was associated with a, a religious position, he, you know, he was a monk, in addition to being an academic, if something like this might, you know, sort of come off as unethical in a way, um, who knows how Gregor Mendel may have stood on this type of position. I think, especially related to human trials, that we've started to do that different researchers have looked into there's a lot more questions for that but there's a lot of benefits to trying to treat diseases and disorders that many people suffer from or that can even be fatal and so some researchers in today's world have been doing that and been working on that and so CRISPR is being investigated as therapy for treating cancers uh, there's investigations for blood diseases that include sickle cell anemia and, you know, beta thalassemia. There's also investigations into neurodegenerative diseases like Alzheimer's and Huntington's. And CRISPR may have applications in treating HIV and, you know, completely curing individuals from HIV and diabetes. Um, some, some ongoing research studies, for instance, that are happening around the U.S. in particular, is that at the University of Pennsylvania, a research team has been conducting studies into seeing whether or not CRISPR can treat multiple myeloma, and that's a type of cancer that affects blood and bone marrow, and CRISPR Therapeutics is another big think group that's also investigating how CRISPR can be used to treat patients who have relapsed or refractory multiple myeloma. So even within these specific diseases and disorders. There's research going on from all sorts of different scientists, all using CRISPR and, as we can probably imagine, going at it at different methods. So CRISPR has really evolved from what it once started in bacteria and yogurt to now potentially solving these diseases that affect a bunch of different people all across the world. And CRISPR is incredibly significant in today's world because it's a lot more accurate and it's a lot more efficient than the other genome editing mechanisms that previously exist. And it's also more accessible. You know, researchers around the world can get their hands on this. It has the potential to advance science in ways that other mechanisms didn't before. In our next episode, we're going to discuss future applications for the CRISPR-Cas9 gene editing system. And we're going to bring up some of those potential ethical concerns that we very briefly touched on in this episode. Um, we hope you'll join us.